Before we get into today's show, I just want to add a quick reminder that any donation given to our nonprofit, Better Burma, will be shared directly with those in Myanmar who need it most. Any and all donations make such a difference right now. Go to insightmyanmar.org donation if you would like to contribute, or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. With that, let's get on to the show. Having visited Burma, I've seen the strength of its people as they've struggled to create and sustain democracy. Now on to the authoritarian Tatmandao, the divisions, prejudices, and violence have been exacerbated and progress has been reversed. Today we're going to be talking about the Burma Act, which very recently passed the U.S. Congress, and I believe is still awaiting signature from President Biden. And we want to make sure that people know exactly what this is. We want to make sure that people know what it isn't. We want to contextualize what's going on to make sure that everyone's operating on a clean informational slate. And I've got a very special guest uh, today to discuss this. So, uh, Mike, if you could uh, tell, tell our audience who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, so hello, everyone who's listening. My name is Mike, and I got involved in Burma advocacy about 20 years ago when I was an undergraduate. Um, worked for a few years at U.S. Campaign for Burma before the sort of opening doing uh, Congress advocacy, advocacy around Congress in Burma. Um, and, uh, you know, for the 10 years of sort of opening or quasi-opening, whatever you want to call that. Visited Burma a lot, you know, stayed uh, interested, but really wasn't working on it from an advocacy side uh, until this coup happened. Um, but basically since the coup, I've been 
spending almost all of my energy uh, trying to pass this thing called the Burma Act. Uh, so I've, I've been able to, um, you know, advocate about it and, and really hear about it, learn about it from lots of different angles, uh, from the way the State Department is looking at it, from the way that the Congress and the two different houses are looking at it, um, how it's viewed on a grassroots level. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been uh, sort of Burma Act all the time, 24 hours a day, so happy to be able to uh, chat about it a little bit here on this podcast. So, yeah, thanks for having me. No worries, and we're very lucky to have you, like someone who who has that that special insider uh, perspective on this. So let's then take advantage of that, and let's contextualize what it is that we're that we're talking about. So when when did the the Burma Act first get proposed to Congress, and what were the the initial hopes for it? Like, what what was it designed to achieve? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So um, you might know that the U.S. Congress works in legislative cycles of two years. Um, This Congress that we're just ending is the 117th Congress of the United States of America. Um, We're about to enter the 118th Congress of the U.S., Um, And so in the previous Congress, there actually was a Burma bill. That was before the coup. Um, That Burma bill focused on limiting the power of the Burmese military and providing aid to certain civil society groups, actually very similar to what this Burma Act uh, focuses on. But it was uh, it was around the Rohingya. Um, it, it, It did have a lot of language around the Rohingya and other ethnic um, groups uh, and and the sort of struggles with the Burma army. Um, It was, uh, it never passed, uh, largely uh, because of the the Mitch McConnell, who is close friends with Aung San Suu Kyi. He didn't want a big piece of legislation uh, kind of targeting the military because of the way it treated the Rohingya passing, uh, simply because he thought it would uh, reflect poorly on Dasu. Um, so that is the sort of origins of this particular piece of legislation. However, uh, after the coup, the Burma Act was really updated uh, and went through many, many different iterations before finally passing uh, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which is what just passed. Um and so uh, this like kind of revamped version of the Burma Act uh, that is really um, rewritten in order to take into account the post-coup situation, uh, that was first introduced in October of last year to the U.S. Congress, but it had been being drafted for much, much longer Um and uh, it, we really started talking about it almost immediately after the coup. So there's a lot of internal drafting. Then it was introduced to committee, then to the floor of the House, the floor of the Senate, or actually never reached the floor of the Senate. But um, anyway, so it, it's been a long time coming, I think, is the, uh, is the short answer. And uh, the, the skeleton of it was the Rohingya Genocide Determination Act, um, but it, it's a very different bill that ended up actually passing uh, just you know, the other day. 
Okay, so you've you've opened a, a lot of doors in a very short space of time. Yeah, so we've got sorry. a lot of different directions that we're going to investigate here. So first, first sure. let's look at the Rohingya thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States, uh, the yeah. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, yeah, uh, a while back officially on behalf of the United States recognized that the military's actions in Rakhine State constitute a genocide, which is not something that the U.S. or the international community throws around lightly. It is a very controversial word. Uh, We see the ongoing controversy with regard to, for example, the Armenian genocide. Um, And so that was quite a substantial uh, step, I think, on the part of the United States. Was that connected to this ongoing bill? Yeah, so I I believe it was. Um, the bill would have forced uh, the State Department, which um, Blinken is the head of, right? He's the Secretary of State, um, to make a determination about whether or not uh, the what happened in Rakhine State constituted a genocide. The uh, and so I believe it did provide pressure. Um, but it had not become law yet, so it didn't provide the legal basis. Uh, it didn't force him to do it. It wasn't a law forcing uh, Secretary Blinken to say that. Um, so often people will introduce laws into the U.S. Congress in order to simply provide pressure that they don't intend on actually passing um, because, you know, the, the State Department watches Congress very closely. Uh, Congress, basically, we say in the U.S., they have the purse strings. So they decide what federal agencies are funded and how they're funded. So the federal agencies watch Congress very closely. And if there's a bill that's gaining pro- popularity that says something like, should uh, the U.S. recognize what happened uh, in Rakhine State as a genocide, um, that's going to push the State Department to look into that and, and actually make a decision. So at that time, the Burma Act did have a piece in it that asked for the State Department to make that determination. Um, and it had already passed the House at the time when they made that determination, but not the Senate yet. It provided pressure, uh, but it did not legally force the State Department to make that decision. But could it and so? The other mm-hmm. way, because you you said that sure. Mitch McConnell was holding it up in the Senate, right? And yeah. that he didn't want um, censure because he was afraid yeah. that Dorsey would be affected. Is it right. possible that the State Department was were, came out and said we're going to proactively declare this a genocide? Yes. So that Mitch McConnell doesn't have that excuse to hold up this bill, or is that unlikely? <laughs> I wish the State Department was that concerned about passing the bill. Um, I didn't, I didn't, don't, didn't feel like I saw a ton of effort from the State Department to push this bill to get passed. Um, so I do believe the pressure was going that way, but I think what you're right, you're right that what, that the knock-on effect of that was that, um, that probably helped McConnell come on board, right? Because it was already, uh, determined to be a genocide. So that whole part of the bill, which was really like, I would say one of the major aspects of the original bill uh, as it was introduced into the House and the Senate uh, on October 5th of last year, 
um, once that was already taken care of, it was much easier to get uh, Senator McConnell on board. So you're right. That was definitely an effect of it. Um, was the State Department that calculating? Um, I wish, but I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, okay. So that's that's not how they operate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe sometimes, but definitely not on this bill. <laughs> okay. So then let's <clears throat> so then let, let's sort of examine this because the the internal politics um, may not be particularly relevant to the average Myanmar person, but they are still fascinating in and of their own right. And secondly, important to understand for people who are following the political process and are trying to to develop a better understanding of how to actually get things done in foreign countries. So in the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, the bill first goes to a committee of, of Congress and they have to approve it before it's even sent to, to the House of Representatives. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. Excellent question. So yes, bills are first introduced into committees. They... Um, this bill, the Burma Act, was introduced into two committees simultaneously. It was introduced into the House Foreign Relations Committee, and it was entered, I'm sorry, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and the equivalent um, committee in the Senate, which is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And um, it was introduced into both of those at the same time. Uh, and yes, so those committees are... Um, members of Congress who are concerned about foreign affairs. They've been appointed by their party to sit on that committee and make decisions about which laws related to foreign affairs are going to enter the floor of the Senate for a full vote. In order for them to leave the committee, there's also a vote. Um, and so you need a uh, because the Senate was 50-50 in, in our last, in the 117th Congress of the United States of America, the, uh, you needed a Democrat and a Republican to agree in order to get a bill out of committee. Um, and so uh, that was part of our problem in the Senate. We had, we, in, in the House, both Democrats and Republicans agreed that the Burma bill was a good bill. We easily got it out of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, but in the Senate, and again, this is because of Mitch McConnell's sort of unique uh, relationship to Myanmar. Uh, for those not from the U.S., Mitch McConnell is the, uh, the head of the Republican Party in the Senate. Um, because of his unique relationship to Myanmar, he, he didn't see it in the same way that the Republicans in the House of Representatives saw it. Um, and so he, uh, he basically didn't green light it. He didn't green light his own party to let it leave the committee in the Senate. So it actually never left committee in the Senate when it reached the floor of the house of representatives. Um, and just like for people listening, we have, we're not like the UK where we have like, well, I guess we sort of are, we have two houses, right? Like we have like, uh, uh, the upper house and the lower house, although they're supposed to be equal power. 
the House of Representatives is our is our big one. This is 435 people. Uh, it's, it's a much more democratic institution than our Senate, um, which only has 100 people, two from every state. Um, and so in the really, really big house, the one with 435 people, which uh, represents people by population, we really easily uh, got it passed. It was, uh, in fact, uh, unanimous consent. It's one of the few uh, people who follow U.S. politics, you might know, is very, very divided. So to have unanimous consent on a bill is, is a really big deal. So that means they put it on the floor. They said, does anyone oppose this? Nobody opposed it. Bam, it becomes law. Um, we did that in the House. It shows like real strong bipartisan agreement. Um, but in the Senate, we were never able to do that. Uh, not because Democrats and Republicans didn't agree. You know, as I met with office after office in the Senate, like I do think Democrats and Republicans largely saw and continue to see Burma through the same lens. Um, it was really because of Senator McConnell, uh, who, who really is like his Burma politics are just sort of like very focused on Nansan Suji and very focused on what we, we might consider sort of like the the NLD uh, old guard or something. Um, and so that that because of that, it, McConnell has often referred to Burma as his pet issue. Um, and because this is his pet issue, uh, none of the Republicans in the Senate would go against him. So it, it, it held up the, the law in the Senate for... Uh, quite some time, actually. I mean, it, it just passed now, right? And the coup is nearly two years ago. Hmm. But then what, I'm just curious with like the political uh, sort of behind the scenes stuff. Why did this yeah. not hold it up in the House? Right, yeah, because... Um, so our, our, our politics and our political institutions uh, are, are divided in many ways, right? Um, you know, the, the, the American democracy, I think the, the pillar of American democracy really is the separation of powers, right? Like the, if you look at the Federalist Papers, which are sort of like the political theory behind the U.S. Constitution, uh, one of the most famous quotes from that is that if men were angels, we'd have no need for government. But because they are not angels, uh, we need the kind of government where one man's ambition serves to check another man's ambition. And so the sort of like balancing of different people's interests and ambitions is, I believe, the center of U.S. Uh, government. And so you, and you can really see this from like working on the Hill, like the way that this is really instilled. Um, although like there are Republicans in the Senate and there are Republicans in the House. They they do answer to different, you know, to, to a large degree, I would say, different leadership. So the 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 House leadership of the Republican Party um, did not agree with Mitch McConnell that the most important thing is uh, Aung San Suu Kyi when you think about Burma. Uh, they They thought about it in a much more sort of um, you know, the ethnic issues, the most recent coup, the uprising against the coup. Um, that was the way that that group of people thought about it. Uh, in the Senate, I would say most Republicans also thought about it in terms of ethnic issues. Um, again, think about Myanmar in terms of ethnic issues, in terms of, um, 
you know, the most recent coup, the uprising against it, and and really kind of see Aung San Suu Kyi as a back burner. But in the Senate, they they need Mitch McConnell to, he's the leader of the Senate Republicans, so they, they need him for committee re- appointments, they need him to help like sort of broker deals. Um, and so going against him on something like Burma, which is one, his pet issue, two, like very, very low priority for the United States. Like it, it's, it, it wouldn't, they wouldn't get anything out of kind of being a hero on this. Um, and so they, they just, it was too much political capital to go against the leader in the Senate. Um, or in the House, you like didn't have that problem, right? Because the Republican leadership agreed with Senate, uh, Democratic leadership. And I want <clears throat> to just, just touch on that because it's very low priority for the United States. It's very low priority for the West. But yeah. there's a lot of contention about that statement in mm. the sense that it seems simultaneously that there are positive pressures not yeah. to take action in Myanmar, partially mm. because it's on China's doorstep. And mm. simultaneously, um, very strong arguments to be made for why the West should be heavily uh, invested considering the United States is an ally of India and a Chinese uh, puppet state on India's eastern border, as well Mm -hmm. as Pakistan, a Chinese ally on the western border, is definitely something that the Indians would be very concerned by. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having having a Chinese puppet within, or uh, I should say, another Chinese puppet within ASEAN is something ASEAN should be deeply concerned by. Having another dictatorship in ASEAN is something that ASEAN should be deeply concerned by. Like There are a lot of factors even before we get into the issues of... um, resources. Uh, Jade is something that doesn't interest the West. Uh, China's very interested in that. But when we look at, um, I think it was tellurium mm-hmm. and, uh, and and another rare earth metal that's being mined in Kachin, uh, which is of, of great value to, to a lot of industries that the West relies on, a lot of electronics and technology industries, it seems as though there should be very good reason for Western powers to say, we want Myanmar to be free and democratic. We want it to be open for business. Um, We want access to the fossil fuels. We want access to the shipping lanes. We want access to um, just the resources in general and and the manpower. And and we want a country that is a stable democracy in the region to keep China at bay, to keep ASEAN stable, to keep India happy. Like, why, why is this being viewed as so low priority, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so somebody like who within the U.S. government once told me it was medium priority. So I, I think we can say medium priority. That's okay. that's probably that's probably the right the right framing. Uh, although I did say low, I would say, you know, the U.S. government's not a unitary entity, right? And so you want to think about the different pieces of it slightly differently. So what do members of Congress and senators? Um, what do they care about? They mostly care about winning elections and keeping power, which is like, again, not a bad thing. Like the center of uh, U.S. Uh, democracy is this idea of, um, you know, balancing different interests. So they're there to balance the interests within their state, right? Uh, Mitch McConnell is not in the Senate to represent Burma. He's in the Senate to represent Kentucky. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the priority of, of 
you know, the, the, the Congress exists to govern the United States. So the fact that the U.S. like happened to end up like a sort of world power was by accident. It wasn't something that was imagined by the early colonists who designed the United States. Um, and so, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. So the way that the Congress thinks about Burma is a very moralistic way, actually. They uh, used to really see it as like, okay, this was a place where the U.S. could do some good. We could restore democracy to this place. We have this horrifying government and this like wonderful, like angelic uh, woman who's fighting against that horrifying dictatorship. And you know, it's just sort of a, a moral crusade to help her come to power. Um, and if you read Dave Steinberg's book, he says that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's name was actually said on the floor of Congress more than Osama bin Laden's name uh, for a, a certain kind of some years in the early 2000s, which is really quite shocking because he was obviously the center of our foreign policy for a very long time. Um, and uh, But this sort of moral crusade like played really well, um, and it was, you know... And it played well with voters, right, to the extent that voters even cared. Like, it was like, you know, you could have all kinds of different uh, constituencies uh, supporting, right? Like, Christians liked it because of the persecution of Christians. Um, you know, the democracy people liked it. Um, sort of like, you know, women's rights groups liked it. Uh, the, uh, you know, sort of people who, you know, like, you know, sort of, ethnic minorities, like non-white people, like then the importance of like sort of elevating uh, uh, people like that as heroes um, liked it. So it was, it really like for a long time, like Congress had this very moralistic way of looking at Burma. And then um, once, uh, you know, once Burma got democracy or quasi-democracy or whatever you want to call it, um, it still did definitely stay in that moralistic category you know like they uh it, it then the rohingya became the next kind of uh moralistic crusade um the state department is very different though right like the state department is it's practical right um and so the state department and the administration are going to be more looking out for things like u.s interests like what you're talking about um in the Congress, to the extent that interests are represented from Burma, it's really Chevron. Like, if you look at the, the Burma Act that passed, it literally has a piece that says before 19, like any company that had an investment in Burma before 1997, like, is exempt to certain parts of the Burma Act. Um, that is, uh, that Chevron's the only company that, that fits that description. Is that um, still in there, by the way? It is in there. Yeah. It's in the final, the final version that passed. Cause I remember even last year they were, they were very hesitant to lay any sanctions on MOGE, uh, right. Memorial Oil and Gas Enterprise. And, and, uh, Chevron pulled out of the country as did Total, no. as did Woodside. Oh, they did not? So Chevron pledged to pull out of the country. She wow. Chevron continues to operate uh, in the country. They, they continue to own shares in the Yadana gas project. Uh, they, they've never divested. So Total did, but Chevron uh, Chevron's still there. Um, they, they have pledged to leave. 
Um, my cynical view is they will leave once there is no more gas and oil to be taken out of the ground, um, which I hear there's maybe like like a year left. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, no, it was it was totally just sort of window dressing. Oh wow! So they're still they're still receiving sort sort of legislative exemption from the Congress. Yes. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, because again, the Congress exists to represent U.S. interests, and the the U.S. largely like like living here in D.C. really see this like the 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 industries like just have a huge influence on U.S. foreign policy. Like uh, we had to get. Um, you know, the senator from Wyoming, you know, somewhat on board because he was on foreign relations. Uh, those of you who uh, know the U.S. geography, like Wyoming is uh, the smallest state by population. It's in the middle of the country. Uh, you might wonder, like, what does this have to do with foreign affairs? The senator from Wyoming wants to be on foreign relations so that he can export all this beef. And if you, like, if you look at everything it does, it's just all about exporting beef, you know, like... Wow. Uh, it's all over his Twitter and stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, like looking like, and I know this is like, seems maybe far flung from Burma, but like, when you want to understand how the U.S. behaves, you have to understand like all the different pieces that sort of constitute U.S. policy making. And the, the absolute number one priority is the promotion of the interests of U.S. businesses abroad. Like the second priority is like U.S. Um, you know geostrategic importance. You know, and that's what you were talking about, right? With um, yeah. and again, that's not necessarily on the minds of all senators like the the senators like to bash china but it's basically because it gets some votes here in the u.s um like how strategically they're thinking about u.s relationships with china that's really like the administration's job um however you're right there's there's a lot of sort of geostrategic arguments you could make about why the U.S. should not, should do everything it can to get the junta out of power and get the democratic forces into power. Um, the, there's a number of barriers to that. The U.S. Uh, cares a lot more about its relationship to Thailand than it does its relationship to Burma. Uh, Thailand is a treaty ally. Um, there's U.S. bases in Thailand. Uh, the U.S. military and the Thai military have pretty close ties, um, and uh, Thailand has been telling the U.S. to basically like chill out. Um, so that's one reason. Um, and Kurt Campbell, who's like sort of the who's the Asia czar uh, in in the administration. Um, you know, if you read his 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 writing on U.S. policy. Uh, it's all about how he thinks Thailand is centered to the Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, Kirk Campbell, like between when he worked in the Obama administration and when he worked in the um, uh, in this administration, the Biden administration, uh, opened this um, uh, consultancy group called the Asia Group that has you know financial interests all over Asia. Um, he had to leave that in order to be in the administration, but. You know, the way Washington works, it's a revolving door. So the second he leaves the Biden administration, he'll be back heading this like investment, well, this like strategic research sort of investment group for companies. And, you know, they have, uh, 
their clients are people like Facebook, um, you know, people who have a lot of interest in uh, not being, you know, too critical, right? <laughs> like to Burma, you know, because Facebook's in all this trouble for, for their role in the Rohingya crisis, right? Like, and maybe Kirk Campbell's a very ethical guy and he can like not think about how it's like completely against his financial interest to, um, you know, it, it, yeah, but, but I doubt it, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the, the, the water that these, uh, the really high-level, like, administrator swim in is, uh, you know, definitely, like, thinking about, like, U.S. financial interests over anything else. So, and Thailand is just, like, a much more stable, uh, you know, financial partner, as well as a military partner. Um, so they're going to have a big influence on U.S. policy uh, in the region. Um, I think, though, also another reason is there's, there's just a lot of cynicism and caution about the ability of the, um, you know, the the opposition forces to actually beat the junta and gain power, um, and like exactly what would that power look like, right? Like there's sort of like a fool me once attitude uh, that you see with a lot of administrators, um, you know, where there's so much hope around. Dasu and the NLD, um, but then you, you know, you had a genocide. So, um, you know, you, you've got all those different factors going on, combined with the fact that there is sort of like a, a presentist or like a, a, you know, a bias for the way things are. Like the the State Department's a bureaucracy, like like any other, um, and it's. Uh, it's not really going to go out on a limb on, on much. Um, the Congress is really there to go out on a limb. Uh, they're, they're the more moralistic actors. Um, but yeah, again, Congress got stuck in this weird kind of like in between, uh, again, because Burma's Mitch McConnell's like pet project. Sorry, I know there's a lot of different directions, but the, uh, just trying to be as thorough as possible. I mean, the more information we have, the better, to, to be honest. It's a very long and very confusing road to yeah. where we are. So yeah. it's good to cover it. And one thing that, I, that is, is kind of important, and this is something that I was discussing with, a, with an analyst uh, quite recently um, with regard to the passage of, of this bill, yeah. was that... Um, Originally, there were some people who were pushing very hard for this to be an independent piece of legislation. Yeah. As it stands, it's been incorporated within the NDAA. So right. for the benefit of those who haven't had to slog through the NDAA for the last year, could you explain yeah. what that is? That is an excellent question. Um, so I would first say that it did the Burma Act passed as an independent piece of legislation through the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, but it, we were not able to get it to pass as an independent legislation through the Senate. This actually, unfortunately, is very typical of bills these days. The Senate is in such deadlock because it's 50% one party, 50% the other party. They don't agree on all that much. Um, and so... You know, again, thinking about this, like not necessarily in the context of Burma, but just in the context of U.S. politics, it's very hard to get something through the Senate these days. 
but you know the U.S. government has to function, right? Like the like the the House and the Senate have to, for example, pass a budget every year, um, and uh, there's certain bills that have to pass every year uh, in order for the U.S. to function, um, or at least they're perceived as needing to pass in order for the U.S. to function. The National Defense Authorization Act is one of those bills. It has passed, there is a National Defense Authorization Act that has passed both houses of the US Congress and been signed by the president every single year since 1961. And what the bill does is it authorizes spending on the US military. Um, and as you might imagine, the parties don't agree on much, but they do agree that we should have a massive military and that it should be well-funded. Um, and so everybody knows that this bill is going to pass every year. And so everybody in the Congress tries to get lots of other bills shoved into it so that they pass too. Um, the bill this year was literally 4,000 pages long. Uh, the Burma Act that ended up in the bill was about 25 pages. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it, it authorizes spending on the U.S. military. A lot of people might get excited and say, oh, wow, does this mean the U.S. is going to spend, uh, you know, give military aid to Myanmar? Um, I know they're it, not to the junta, obviously, but to the opposition forces. And it's true, the bill does mention the NUG, it mentions EAOs, it mentions, you know, plenty of organizations that have armed wings. Um, but, but just because this is in the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorizes spending on the U.S. military, it does not mean there will be any military aid. In fact, it's very specific in the bill that only non-lethal aid uh, will be provided. Um, and, you know, to the extent that the U.S. has funded the NUG, it's like very small, like administrative things here and there, like through the NED. Um, the reason it's in the National Defense Authorization Act is simply that that is the only way to get things passed through our incredibly deadlocked Congress. And so let's, uh, let's just linger a little bit because the bill currently yeah. does mentioned by name, the National Unity Government, the PDFs, the People's Defense Forces, which are interesting, uh, EAOs, yeah. organizations. And what's fascinating about this, I think most of the audience is aware of the context, but just, just in case this uh, reaches sure. a broader audience. Um, so the PDFs and the EAOs are armed organizations who are openly in conflict, uh, usually openly in conflict with the military. There are armed ethnic organizations which are not in conflict with the military that have treaties, but the majority are in armed conflict with the military. And these are not recognized internationally as, as lawful or as representing a state entity. Uh, so by many, many definitions, they could be considered uh, criminal uh, armed organizations. And yet this version of the Burma bill specifically mentions them. And the versions of the Burma bill that were going around last year specifically mentioned the Tamado, the Burmese military, for censure and uh, sanction, but did not actually mention the NUG, did not actually mention the EAOs and the PDF. What happened in the last year to bring about that change? That's a great question. Um, I think that was a lot of uh, lobbying from diaspora groups. Um, the group that has been so effective in lobbying uh, has been the Chin 
refugees here in the U.S. Um, I think that they have a few things going for them. One is uh, the Chin refugees tend to live in Republican states, um, and uh, the Republicans um, were able to have a lot of influence over the Burma bill, partly because they were stalling on it, right? So, like, if you stall on a bill, like, in the Senate, it was introduced by Democrat Ben Cardin, um, and so then the Republicans sort of, you know, were able to push back, you know, we won't, we won't let it leave committee unless you do this, this, and that. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they're, uh, Florida, Indiana, uh, Kentucky, um, Texas, all states with lots of, uh, Chin refugees in them or well, Florida less so, but, but Florida has a lot of Burmese refugees in general. Um, and, uh, they are, um, and that, yeah, and they're all Republicans who sit on the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, there's eight Republicans on the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and the, those are some key states uh, with senators from the Foreign Relations Committee. I think the reason, like, Chin, um, Kachin, Karen are able to have uh, the kind of influence that they have is because they are Baptists. And um, the Baptist Church has a lot of influence over U.S. policy. Uh, it's a very big religion here in the United States, uh, especially in um, Republican states. Uh, and so, you know, they're able to sort of integrate into those networks. Um, and, you know, the, the American Baptist sort of lobbying wing uh, took on the Burma Act as one of their priorities. Um, and uh, and and made recommendations about the language change. Um, I think that was a key factor. Um, I mean, I think also like other factors, uh, just being sort of, you know, the the U.S. agencies that uh, you know operate on the borders and stuff. You know, hearing more and more that that is the way to get aid in these days. Um, but I I would really like you know, emphasize that, that any aid that, and first of all, simply them being named in the Burma Act doesn't mean that they actually are going to get aid. The, there's a whole nother process of allocation that has to happen next. Um, this authorizes the spending, the, the National Defense Authorization Act authorizes the spending of things. And then there's a whole nother appropriations process um, that, you know, we're gearing up to try and influence, um, that would actually appropriate the money. And then the federal agencies also have, um, a lot of say about how they appropriate the money that's given to them, uh, that they're supposed to spend on Burma. So there's a lot of different steps. And I mean, to be totally honest, even like best case scenario, not all that much money or training is going to reach these groups. Um, you know, it, but it is significant, like you're saying, it's politically significant that the U.S. is recognizing that. I mean, money and training will reach some of the groups. Um, that is significant. Um, the I think providing humanitarian aid across border, even though the U.S. has a history of doing that, especially across the Taiwan border, like is is still a risky thing to do, and it still is significant that the U.S. is willing to do that. Um, and so. Yeah, I think it's a, mostly a reflection of American politics and, and where uh, people from Burma live in the U.S. and then a little bit of a reflection of the sort of federal agencies learning more about what's happening on the ground. Okay. Okay, so then let's, 
let's look to the future because then this this has been a yeah. very very long time coming. It's yeah. gone through a lot of changes. It's done a lot of things. So yeah. unfortunately, there's already going to be widespread misinformation about. Yeah. I mean, as you say, this prediction that oh, it means the U.S. military is going to come in or the U.S. military is going to yeah. start giving lethal aid. So mm. what? can happen and, and these are two different things what yeah. does the bill allow to happen yeah and what is likely to happen yeah i mean the bill authorizes a lot it uh in a lot of things that the sort of movement has been asking for um the original burma act that pat well the <laughs> so many copies of the burma act but the strongest uh version of the Burma Act that was ever passed the body in the U.S. Congress uh, was the version that was in the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. We ended up, the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act basically is what ended up becoming law. So, um, the uh, But that one had MOGE as mandatory uh, sanctions. Um, this one... Uh, has it only as discretionary. So um, it opens the the door for more advocacy around that. Um, I think the biggest holdup on that is actually, again, Thailand. It's a geopolitical thing. But um, but it, it it's it's great that they actually named MOGE. I know Chevron did not want that, and there was a lot of uh, lobbying to get that in there. So, and we were surprised to see it in there, uh, to be honest, when it when it got to the final version. So that was a pleasant surprise. Um, so, from an advocacy point of view, that is, uh, you know, an important thing to emphasize. There is a um, somewhat extensive, uh, you know, sort of sanctions section. Um, it's, uh, it, it calls for the sanctioning of senior, uh, members of the SAC, uh, which the U S has already done, but I do think this provides pressure on the treasury and the state department to expand that list of people, um, uh, and, and expand ways that, that they sort of limit the money going to the SAC, um, and so the, the, the sort of first two bullets of the, uh, the sanctions section, you know, are the, the mandatory sanctions, and then there's a number of discretionary sanctions. Um, the mandatory sanctions basically take a lot of things that the Biden administration already did and like codify them and provides more pressure, uh, to, uh, to an expanded list basically of, of people from the, uh, who have senior positions in the SAC. Um, that, that is significant because it does provide pressure on the federal agencies, again, like State Department and Treasury, who are the two agencies involved in sanctioning, uh, their funding is reliant on Congress, so they look very closely at Congress's guidance. Um, another piece, uh, as you said, is it, is it makes very clear that, you know, it's U.S. policy to be working with, and then it's a whole... A uh, list of kind of members of Burma's uh, democratic opposition, the NUG, the NUCC, the CRPH, the it says the it says the CDM, the Civil Disobedience Movement, uh, the it says EROs, which I thought was interesting, uh, ethnic resistance organizations, um, and so uh, you know that is significant because it's a statement of of 
that the U.S. policy is to work with those organizations. It's very specific that we can't give humanitarian aid that in any way goes through the um, the Tatmadaw through the junta in any way. Um, it, uh, I think, the other kind of like significant bucket, other than kind of uh, the two I've talked about, is the humanitarian aid, um, which again. Uh, the organizations you mentioned are mentioned. Um, this will, I believe, push uh, the 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 federal agencies to to you know kind of put more attention on it. But this is also like a place where more advocacy is needed. And I really think the next piece of advocacy is that, or what I'm going to do next anyway, is spend a lot of time with the appropriations committee trying to convince them that we need to appropriate more money to Burma. Um, one of the kind of stop-ups there is the State Department and USAID uh, say that even if they had more money, they wouldn't know where to spend it. Um, we're trying to make the, the point. And the legislation tries to guide them toward lots of different places that we could spend money. We've actually spent, uh, I would say, compared to similar conflicts, like the conflict in Tigray right now, uh, comparatively little on Burma. Um, and so I think the case can be made to the appropriations committees uh, to appropriate more. Um, and the, the bill like helps us make that case. Um, but yeah, it's very, the bill, although I think it's very significant, it's also very much a step in a much larger process to try and influence the U.S. government uh, to be more on the side of, of the revolution in Burma. I mean, let's let let's look at this because this is sort of what this bill does is it just opens yeah. the door, but it doesn't yeah. actually guarantee, it doesn't make promises. And this is something that we saw last year with the NDAA. Yeah. Yeah. When a lot of money was made available to Myanmar. And what people thought was that this means the US Congress is going to start delivering lump sum payments to yeah. Burmese civil society organizations or PDF or the NUG, when right. in reality what it meant was the U.S. is giving money from the federal coffer yeah. to organizations that are also U.S. government organizations like USAID to right. dedicate to Burmese assistance, but not necessarily handing over cash, right. just providing assistance. So what is like? these are two very different things, and people yeah. often conflate them. So with, with regards to this... Is there any likelihood that, because you said they have money, or even if they had money, they wouldn't know where to spend it. Is there yeah. any likelihood of a partnership with any of these organizations? Most crucially, I think the National Unity Government, it has, yeah. I think, the greatest uh, case for legitimacy of any yeah. of the actors. Is there any possibility for the U.S. government partnering with the NUG, not necessarily to hand over cash, but to, at the very least, say, direct us to where we need to send our assistance and we yeah. will target those those projects. Is that viable? I mean, I think that is an excellent role for the NUG to play. And so um, the National Unity Government actually just opened an office here in D.C. Um, and the uh, one of the groups of people who are present was the, the National Endowment for Democracy who funds a lot of um, things on the border and is, you know, you know, working with the NUG here. Um, and, 
in that sense, like there is a degree of at least conversation about direction uh, for spending to go. I think to some degree that's on the NUG. Like the NUG needs to come up with like clear plans about like, okay, if we had this much money, this is how we would spend it. Um, and make that pay- that case compellingly to the uh, the allocation, I'm sorry, the appropriations committees uh, in both houses. Um, the most impo- important appropriations committee for this Congress, I've heard, is the, um, the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, so it's Barbara Lee uh, of, of San Francisco. Um, there's lots of Burmese people who live in San Francisco, so... Um, I've uh, been reaching out to them to reach out to Barbara Lee uh, with, with some success. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there's, there's definitely a possibility for that. Uh, and by that, I mean, like the, the NUG working with the U.S. To, um, to at least direct funds um, to a very small degree that is already happening. Um, it's really just about amping that up. Um, and, and I think to some degree that the, the, the NUG has got to kind of increase their advocacy around that, um, to get that done, which they all are already doing. Um, but, uh, you know, they have a lot on their plate. I mean, the, the primary thing, you know, the NUG does in the States is like fundraise for the revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, those fundings come from like, you know, particular sort of power centers of the diaspora. Um, and, and they don't necessarily have a, a strong understanding about how to uh, influence U.S. policy, um, but, but they're getting there. Mm. I mean, this is, this is just, I don't, it's a recurring theme that, mm. that we've dealt with. <sighs> Sometimes one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. Sometimes yeah. one hand doesn't know that the other exists. Right. And this seems consistent where there are so many cases where you have people who are in a position to say, I have the capacity to provide assistance. And you have yeah. other people saying, I desperately need assistance. But right. these two people don't know each other. They're not communicating. Um, yeah. So is there anything we can do? Because the U.S. system, the U.S. bureaucracy is intense. Like it is yeah. It is imposing, to say the least. And again, for a country of 320-something million people, yeah. you would expect the, the bureaucracy and, and the the system to be large and robust. Yeah. It has to be. And it yeah. can't be too hasty because there are a lot of different ways that mistakes can happen and people can be left behind. So it's very yeah. much to the U.S.'s credit that it considers things carefully before it takes action. However, mm-hmm. is there a specific way in which we can try to cut through these um, delays and reach key people or, or make our, uh, as, as pro-democracy activists and, and the NUG and the PDF and the EAOs, make the potential for collaboration and the willingness to collaborate on non-lethal projects known to the administration. Yeah, so I think there's two tracks to that. Um, one track I would call sort of the rational track where like, I think that, um, you know, people who support the democracy movement in Burma around the world can help to make the argument, uh, to state department that there's all the, and, and other federal agencies, that there's all these different ways that, um, money could be spent, um, to, you know, to the good of the Burmese people, um, and I think that, like, helping 
people like the NUG write proposals, people like EROs, etc. Um, I think that like there's a lot of like sort of just like I don't use the word translation that needs to happen where you have the sort of like situation in Burma, the people understand the situation in Burma, and then like having that carefully explained to um, you know different levels of the U.S. Uh, bureaucracy, um, as you identified. Like, that is important. That will get results the more those those uh, voices are clarified. I think another way that this needs to be attacked and, and should be and can be attacked is, like, a broader narrative conversation, um, you know, through the media, really, um, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi in so many ways was like a flawed character. However, mm-hmm. like her story and the compellingness of that really did drive US policy for two decades. Um, again, because like people don't have a big, uh, you know, they just don't have that much space for understanding Burma. They have like, they, they can, if you're, if you're on the foreign relations committee of, you know, the U S Senate, like there's what, like 193 countries in the world. Like the U S is involved in literally all of them in one way or another, like the dollar, there's just so many ways the U S is involved globally. Um, and so, you know, it's not realistic to, to think that Burma is going to be a top priority, um, but you can control like to what extent, you know, what is the narrative if you only have space in your brain for a little bit about Burma? Um, I don't think we can just quite go back to the old narrative, which again did drive US policy, but having more narratives about the uprising, about the hope and the resistance, like stuff like that, I think it would be helpful because uh, it would like, you know, when you walk into that meeting then with the with the senator's office or something, they'd be like, okay, this is the place where people are resisting military rule, um, and that's what they're going to ask for. Instead of right now, I think people's understanding is just very muddy. They're like, oh, yeah, there's like some ethnic problems there, and I remember there's an uprising, but I don't really know what's happening with that because it was only really covered by the global media for like two months. So, like, um, I... And so I don't know. I like personally, I'm trying to to think about ways to like reapproach, like the guy who made the Aung San Suu Kyi poster that you know I we did approach him right after the coup happened, mm-hmm. and he was going to make another poster for Angel, um, you know the 19 year old who was killed in Mandalay, but then Angel's family didn't want him to do that, and so then we didn't end up making a poster. But like doing something like that because like once you have that, then you have like a new story. Um, and then you can go to the storytellers like Hollywood to like tell the story. Um, and you know, that, that does matter. Like narrative drives policy. And like, I just see both in like the sort of educated U S population. And then those are the people who like staff, you know, Senate offices, like there, there just isn't a clear narrative about what's happening. Uh, and there, and there isn't time or patience to understand like a complex narrative, um, and so things just really just don't move. And it's, I mean, I'm glad you, you mentioned narrative. Like I, I personally, uh, am a big fan of mm. the concept of narrative and the importance of narrative yeah. because, you know, it's occurred to me as it's occurred to many people, 
even if you're telling someone a thing that happened, a thing that you saw, you tell it as a narrative. When you explain yes. history, we tell it as a story, as, totally. as almost like a children's bedtime story, skipping over right. a lot of nuance. And everything that we know, every understanding that we have of things that have happened or that are happening or the way we imagine the future is in this narrative format. So the way that the story is controlled is important. And and you brought up Angel and yeah. oh, Jason, and she, yeah. she, I think, is a very good example um, because I, I was confused initially. Mm. I was, so Jason, for those who are not following, I believe it was the 3rd of March crackdowns mm. uh, in 2021. And she was 19 years old. She's from Mandalay. Um, I think she was a Taekwondo black belt as well. And she mm. was at the protests and she was shot uh, in the head by a sniper and she died. Now she was buried reasonably quickly mm. and she she was killed on the Wednesday. She was buried on the Thursday. And what was really strange to me was that on the Friday, the military broke into the cemetery, forcibly exhumed her body, removed the bullet fragment, uh, and then reburied her body under concrete. Mm. Uh, which they poured and they desecrated her her burial in the process. And they went on the six o'clock news to claim that they'd removed these bullet fragments and they have determined that the military were not responsible for shooting Angel. And this was this was really traumatic and horrific, as you can imagine, um, particularly for her father, who was the one pressured by the military, very likely at gunpoint, to give them permission to to go in and and exhume her body until it was explained to me much later that the reason this happened was because Jason was ethnic Chinese and mm. her death blew up on um, WeChat or other mm. situation in China and it caused a phenomenal public outcry. And that's mm. why the military was so pressured to take extraordinary action to try and shift the blame away from themselves. So it really goes to show how narrative in one country can drive immediate response within Myanmar from the military themselves uh, when they start seeing the the floorboards cracking under their feet. So I think it is incredibly powerful. But then the question becomes, can we get people to to listen? Like This is a moralistic issue. Like the United States, mm. you mentioned the Chin, our Baptist. Mm. Um, persecution of Christians is a, not to be too cynical, but a favorite Oh, totally. um, tagline, particularly among Republicans. They love yes. this idea of Christian persecution. Come to Myanmar. There is legitimate decades-long, possibly even centuries-long persecution of Christian minorities in, in Karen, Kareni, in Chin, Shan, Kachin, all these places. Um, we want to talk about defending democratic values. This is a country that came out of a dictatorship um, to, a, to a faux democracy that then slightly strengthened in 2015, that was then further reaffirmed in 2020 general elections. This was a country that was experiencing a, a capitalist economic boom, external uh, investment, in improvements in quality of life and freedoms. This is something worth defending if you are a Western country that, that continues to go on about the values of freedom and democracy and, and an open market. Why is this narrative not taking root among uh, particularly conservative American uh, policymakers or, or, or establishment figures, it seems like this is all of their buzzwords in one. Yeah, so I think a few things. I mean, one is like, and obviously, a, working in advocacy, so this is 
my belief of why it's useful like partly is it's simply the work hasn't been done like the like building like although the the Baptist churches like have done some really cool things, um, including having like, uh, at, at least in the Chin churches, they literally played videos about how to lobby or a member of Congress about the Burma Act, which I thought was amazing. Um, and again, like, a, yeah, the American Baptists, uh, their, um, their, their lobbying crew did take on this uh, issue, which was also amazing. Um, but um you know, and so the work is being done, but there's a lot more work to be done. And I think that, that you know, the right vision and commitment, you really could make it much more of an issue uh, among those groups. Um, you know, I think that there is ways to re-engage um, the sort of, I guess you could say the, the Democratic side, the blue states, like through something like that guy who made the poster of Aung San Suu Kyi. He's the guy who made the Obama poster. He's like very like seen as sort of like an intellectual artist, like leader within the sort of like mainstream Democratic uh, establishment. And so, you know, if we could find a nice narrative for him to do, like, you know, because Angel's parents said that... Uh, we couldn't use her, like we'd have to use something else, but if we can kind of figure that out, yeah, we'd get a lot of currency from that, I believe. Um, I mean, part of the reason though that the narrative is muddied is is simply the Rohingya genocide. I mean, like the, you know, 2007, you're right, like the US, the US, the Obama administration really tried to, to spin like the democratization of Burma as this huge success of US policy. Um, but then like post 2017, like it just all became very confusing, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, oh, is this a success? Like, uh, I mean, I think that the, the ethno nationalism was always there. Right. I mean, like if you read like Thotman Ooze book about, you know, his most recent one, he, he talks about Aung San Suu Kyi's essays at Oxford, where she really talks about like the, the Chinese and the, and the, um, uh, the um who are they the, like the south asian immigrants and how they were sort of like you know tools of imperialism and i don't think she uses that word but like it's kind of the way according to Thaw that she frames them and so you know this sort of like like sort of ethno-nationalist like um strand has always been there but it, it was never at the front of u.s um thinking about burma until 2017 and then it became impossible to ignore and then questions about Burma chauvinism and and all that became like center stage, um, and and the fact that the minorities like you know do have a lot of they they have more access to influence of the U.S. government than the sort of like you know Burma nationalists that live uh, you know mostly on the coast, um, and uh, it it just it unfortunately creates sort of a confused narrative because. I mean, yes, like the, the you know, different sort of, you know, non-Burma groups are, are struggling for democracy. But then, you know, when you press them, like, what do they mean by democracy? They mean like Karen people controlling Karen land, like Chin people controlling Chin land, Kachin people controlling Kachin land. You know, that's not democracy. It's just another kind of ethno-nationalism, you know. So then it's like, yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the narrative just comes becomes confused very quickly. Uh, and, uh, and then it's like, okay, now you don't have the moral impetus anymore. And so then it's like, okay, what, well, what do we got? Okay. You got the geostrategic argument, but then it's like, okay, are we betting on a winning horse? And then that's a hard thing to prove because you have to prove the future. And like, it, it, that's where it gets so muddy, but I do 
like that's the negative side, right? The positive mm. side is like I think it it is actually being getting to coalesce. Like I think people are again seeing Burma as a struggle against a military dictatorship. There's so much conversation about um, you know the. Uh, cooperation between the different ethnic groups and the PDFs and the and you know just different many different forces that are fighting the regime right now, um, and that is beginning to get heard more and more at the highest levels. Um, and I do think it's it's a reflection of things on the ground. Um, and I do think like a more positive narrative, a more sort of like um, you know you know, anti-coup narrative uh, it is is beginning to coalesce. And and you see that in the Burma Act, as you were saying, like the EA, the EROs, the um, the NUG and 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 CDM and other groups are like named in the Burma Act as the group that the US as the groups that the US is allied with. Um, you know, what does that mean materially? Like that's, you know, where a lot of pushing has to happen. But I, I do think that new narrative is 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 coalescing. Okay. I mean, it's it's heartening, but it's just very difficult to get that message uh, through. And and unfortunately, yeah. you know, a lot of the press, uh, a lot of the sort of pressure is coming from the diaspora community, which is great. It's it's wonderful yeah. that they've continued to be connected. And when you look at the collective millions of dollars that mm-hmm. the diaspora communities have raised, especially when you consider the reality for uh, migrant families. Yeah. Uh, worse for refugee families, but migrant families in general often have to yeah. restart life from scratch. No equity, no totally. reputation, no nothing. They they tend to stay uh, in in poorer situations for a generation at least. Uh, the the economic outpouring that's coming from the diaspora community has been absolutely mind blowing and overwhelming, um, which is which is very heartwarming. But the problem is that ethnic minority groups often don't have a huge amount of pull with yeah. media groups, especially with mm-hmm. mainstream media groups. Yeah. Um, as a, particularly if they speak a minority language, which which obviously mm-hmm. the Myanmar community often do. So is there a way that we can sort of get media organizations to be uh, more enticed by the story? Because politicians do seem to respond to mainstream media. They don't like to be embarrassed in the mainstream media and be painted as, yeah. as inactive on a, on a very important humanitarian front. Um, but the mainstream media don't seem to be interested in this. Is there any way that we can change that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's all sorts of ways. I mean, one is um, the, uh, well, we, we had a, U.S. Advocacy Coalition for Myanmar had op-eds in the the uh, and they're written by sort of local people um, in the biggest paper in Indiana, the biggest paper in Kentucky, the biggest paper in uh, Pennsylvania. In or- I'm sorry, not Pennsylvania. Um, we tried to do that, we hadn't, didn't succeed yet. But uh, uh, Florida, anyway, th- these these places where we were trying to influence um, the policymakers. And indeed, whenever we had a, an op-ed, like the, the office of the senator responded almost immediately and reached out to the person who wrote it and stuff like that. And it, uh, that, that does get their attention. Um, so, so part of it is like, I think you're right, we want that big national story, but, uh, but really when you're dealing with Congress, like all politics is local and uh, getting an op-ed in, like a, in even the major paper, uh, it was like the Miami Herald for 
uh, Florida, which is a major U.S. paper, um, is uh, is it's somewhat it's doable, you know, like, and it's the kind of thing that that with a little help, like, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a recent immigrant to the U.S. Uh, should be able to do, and they do want to hear from people in their states for those papers. So that's one way to do it. Um, you know, another way is is making alliances with more powerful groups, right? Like a, the Baptists are, I know that's an example I keep going to, but that's the one that's been, I would say, absolutely the most successful. But, you know, there, there, um, there's plenty of other groups. Um, the, the Muslim associations here in the U.S. are very concerned about the Rohingya, um, and, and they it does matter when Rohingya uh, kind of reach out to the, the broader Muslim community. Um, that That is also helpful. Um, you know, the Buddhism as well, um, especially on the coast, um, and you see that a little bit too. You know, all that works, um, you know, just pitching bigger stories to the media. I think, I honestly think like Hollywood could get involved like they did before. Although I know some people cringe when you say that, but it, mm. it does help with storytelling. You know, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm just here for what's practical. Um, so I think that's very possible. You know, like previously, like you had like Bono and stuff like talking about it. And yeah, then maybe we cringe when we think about that, but it, it did help, you know, it did help create a narrative. Um, so, you know, I, I do think stuff like that is still available to us. Um, we just have to, you know, be a little bit more sleuthy about how we, we go about it. Um, you know, the, yeah, so the, there's just a lot of different ways that that, that, that problem can be overcome, like you're, you were talking about, um, like the diaspora in, in specific, like, you know, it, it it there's such a it's such a broad range of different folks. Um, you know, some of the diaspora, most almost all of the diaspora was pro Burma Act, and lots and lots of people came out and worked for it. But some of the more like it's sort of ethno nationalist, like were were opposed to it for the same reason McConnell was opposed to it because it mentioned the Rohingya. And then the final version of the Burma Act doesn't mention the Rohingya. Like McConnell effectively took them out. Uh, erase them from it. Um, partly, maybe you could argue, like you said, because the genocide was already, um, you know, determined as a genocide. But I think also partly because, like, you know, you just like a lot of the Burmese diaspora just like refused to uh, allow for that word to be, you know, uh, either the word or they didn't want it to be referred to as an ethnicity. And then they always say, oh, it's just a translation issue. And, uh, I don't know. So, I mean, there is a lot of, of that. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just hard. I mean, it's, it's that like to some degree, like the, uh, of course the diaspora has a very special role in creating Burma policy. Um, but I do think that Burma policy has to be driven, one, by more of it just for practical considerations, right? Like you said, there's like 320 million Americans. There's maybe 300,000 people from Burma living in America. Uh, so it's not really enough to drive policy. Um, and then second, um, you know, just for like justice reasons, I mean, like it, it, it should be a human rights driven policy. It should be a democracy driven policy. It should be like, 
a policy that thinks about like general welfare of people and the, you know, um, all those things like that. Um, and you know, that, that those should sort of be the, the pillars of us policy toward Myanmar and it, and it should be that because that's like the right thing to do. Um, more than just like who's saying, uh, what, when, um, but yeah, how to sort of get to that ends. Um, you just want to think about like who influences who, where does power lie in the United States? Um, you know, the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So it was just the thing that I want to lead on to from here is the other, the, the obvious question of other than how can we capitalize on this piece of legislation and yeah. get the the uh, the system and um, the establishment to to actually manifest things is there a possibility for further legislation as well or is mm. the Burma bill going to be seen by congress as sort of well this is it like this we've done the thing we only have one dance move that's it or can we continue and and get more through congress Absolutely, we can continue. Um, I got a bunch of different thoughts on this. So one is like, it you know, Congress like they 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 run on campaigns. They run on they run on winning campaigns. You know, like the last thing Congress. A good last thing that's good in Congress is to lose a fight, right? They don't want to be on the side of the loser. They they like getting reelected and campaigns is like in their blood. So the fact that we won is so important. Like it it creates momentum. It means that we're like the kind of people you want to hang out with because we fucking win. Like the um that so that is very, very important. Two, like the um I would, you know, I would say that like legislation exists for all kinds of reasons, um, and as I've seen with this Burma Act, like different pieces of legislation get cannibalized and like, you know, end up passing as other pieces of legislation all the time. Um, so simply getting a few bills on the floor asking for stuff we want can be very important. It can pressure the State Department. It can like end up in another bill at some time. Um, you know, if you look at the amount of bills that are in the Congress at any one time, it's a, it's a staggering amount, you know, in the thousands. Um, and then people might say, oh, that's kind of silly. But, you know, th- those bills get get taken apart and reassembled and, and all this kind of stuff. So definitely important. I think that, you know, the... And there's a lot that Congress can do that isn't simply laws. Like we can, uh, you know, have top Democrats write letters to the uh, Biden administration, which matters because the Biden administration is going to care what the leaders of its own party wants. Um, uh, But yeah, I think there's a lot more that we can do with legislation, especially now that we've established ourselves as like, savvy enough to like fight this fight for two years i mean a lot of people thought this was never going to pass you know i heard that constantly like from human rights advocates from particularly from vermont nationalists like lots and lots of people are like why are you wasting your time this is never going to pass um and it did pass and it did pass because we had a pretty i think realistic understanding of where power lies in the united states and we went to groups like the Baptists because they had power, you know, like, and, and they flexed that power and we won. Um, and so, 
yeah, this is only good. Like it, it if it didn't pass, like we would be starting uh, in January, like trying to pass the Burma bill again. Now that it passed, like there's so much more we can do. Wow. Okay. And so those, so those additional pieces of legislation could sort of combine with this and could help us to drive the types of outcomes. Like I'm not phrasing this well, the Burma bill opened a lot of doors. Oh, and definitely. It doesn't guarantee anything. So could yeah. we use those additional pieces of legislation to guarantee some of those doors are actually crossed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because you because one thing like to keep in mind is like, you know, at the end of the day, these laws are written by people, right? And like the the people who wrote the Burma Act and worked on the Burma Act, uh, you know, within the Congress, not not, you know, people like me. Of course, it wasn't the only thing on their plate, right? But it was one thing on their plate that turned out well, like it passed, like they they won that fight. Um, and so now the next time you contact them, they're, they're going to be that much more willing to, to kind of work on the next thing because um, they had a good experience with it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I could imagine like a, another bill that, you know, you know, let's say that MOG sanctions is the is the what we want. Like, you know, has it in the mandatory category, or you know, um, I I hope that at some point we we pass something with a much larger number on it for how much we want spent on Burma. It's the Republicans have really pushed back against that, um, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. I mean, now the Democrats. Uh, we'll have 51 people in the Senate instead of 50. Like that means the committees are no longer 50-50 split. That that means the log jam isn't going to be as bad. Like um, we completely have the support of the Republicans in the House. Uh, so yeah, no, I think it actually opens a lot of possibilities. And it's also, again, because a lot of these legislators now had a good experience with the Burma Act. If we want Gregory Meeks to make a statement about something that happened in Burma, you know, it's, it's easy. It'll be easier now. Like, um, if we want him to talk to the administration about it, again, it's an easier ask because it, it makes that channel between sort of us advocating around it, uh, and the members of Congress like that much more strong. And so I do want to touch on that, the, the mm. description of the Congress itself. Mm. Um, so America obviously has elections every two years. There recently yeah. was an election. Uh, right. finally, I, did the did the Georgia seat finally get settled? By the way, yeah, the Georgia seat went to a Democrat. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that was impressive. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that being the case, so you say it's fifty one. Mm -hmm. So is it is it fifty one forty nine in the Senate? Yeah, fifty one forty nine. Yep. Okay. So do do the senators generally vote as a block? So I'm speaking from the Australian. Yes, context. absolutely. Yeah, no worries. They, they don't vote as a block here. Oh, that yeah, that that used to be our politics like thirty years ago. But yeah, they they uh, votes are um, are are largely partisan these days. Yeah. Okay, so we could. So who's so is Chuck Schumer still the the Senate yep. leader? Exactly. Okay, so yep. so if Chuck Schumer were to put his name behind a piece of legislation, that would largely guarantee that all 51 of the Democratic senators would vote to pass it through the Senate. Yeah, it would mean it would be very likely that they would, yeah, because they because they would want favors with the leader. Okay, and so let's talk about the lower house. My understanding is the Republicans have more seats in the lower house. That's correct, yeah. 
Um, is that going to be a problem? Because obviously legislation has to pass both houses. Do we have right. to wait for another NDAA to get something passed or, or can we actually win the lower house? Yeah. Um, so the lower house, uh, the, the, the bill is actually completely bipartisan in the lower house. We had, um, uh, it, it was introduced with both Democrats and Republicans as the leaders. And even better than that, we had the Democratic leader of the House Foreign Affairs Committee as the lead, and the co-lead was the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is the highest-ranking Republican in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as the lead. Um, and so they worked together on that. Um, we had the um, another lead on the bill was the Democratic chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on East Asia, and the Republican uh, uh, the ranking member of the Democratic, uh, the, the Foreign Affairs Co Subcommittee on East Asia in the House was also on the Burma bill. So we're lucky that if one of the two houses went Republican, that it was the House of Representatives, as you said, the lower house. Um, uh, because the Republicans are on board in that house. It's really only the Senate that we've, that we had trouble with. Okay. So, I don't want to overstate it, but then does this yeah, mean yeah. that the door's kind of wide open to, to get a bunch of legislation through? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> the door is open. Yeah, wide open is, yeah, that's maybe a Too little much. bit much, but, <laughs> but okay. it's, it's, it's a good next step. I mean, I, you know, I, it, so the NTAA is every year. Um, you know, to be honest, like still the best way to, to pass any legislation related to foreign relations is going to be getting it in the NDAA. Um, so, but, you know, the next big piece of legislation is, is appropriations, um, which is where they actually like spend the money that things like the NDAA authorizes them to spend. Um, and so uh, that battle is coming up relatively quickly. Uh, the U.S. is, even though we're in the 2023 uh, fiscal year, we're still running on the 2022 budget. Uh, so, so hopefully we'll actually pass the 2023 budget soon. Um, but then we also, like... Uh, um, you know, can begin for the next the next budget bill, um, and and luckily the the person uh, in the Senate uh, is the same same person for that one. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be lots to do. Um, like the more like people like me, you know, learn about. You know, because also, like, honestly, like, the advocates learn from this, right? Like, and, and like, U.S. Advocacy Coalition for Myanmar, who's, uh, I've been a part of, but really a lot of, like, really awesome, like, young uh, Burmese folk um, around the, the U.S. have been involved in, like, you know, a lot of them have, have been attending meetings with myself and, and with members of Congress, like, for, like, now, like, two years. So they, like, they get it, like they get the rhythm of how Congress works. They, you know, we, we have happy hours sometimes and like, you know, the, the legislative staff come to the happy hours and we can talk to them. And, you know, we're, we're increasing in our sophistication uh, through this process. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the more you do, the more you can do. Okay. 
And so are there any particular people that we want to target, that we want to lobby? Like, is it more important for us to be friends with Chuck Schumer? Is it more important to be friends mm. with the people on the committees? Mm. Yeah, the committee. Oh, yeah. The committee is more important. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the leader will default to the committee um, be just sort of out of courtesy. Um, uh, I, I would have assumed the committee follows whatever the leader tells them to do. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, the leader sort of decides like what the what the party prioritizes. Um, the leaders will very rarely put their name on legislation. Um, uh, so, but the leader has like a lot of sort of behind the scenes influence. Like we like uh, McConnell's not on the Foreign Relations Committee, but he did have a lot of. Um, you know, influence over the Burma bill. Um, uh, but that was all like behind the scenes stuff that was like offices calling offices. Um, and so, yeah, no, the, the committee chairs are the most important. Okay. And then so other members of the committee. Yeah. And are those static or do they rotate or what happens with those? Are they ad hoc? Uh, no. So yeah, they're, they're picked at the beginning of each Congress. Um, I expect the foreign relations and foreign affairs uh, to to remain pretty much the same. Uh, although, of course, like the the ranking member will become the chair in the in the House because um, the Democrats and Republicans are switching uh, roles. Um, but the the Senate, I believe, will remain basically similar. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, so I, I think that leaves us with a good sort of overview of where we've come from, what we have right now, and and where we can go in the future. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's a that's an organic place for us to to wrap up. But as is uh, our, our convention, I want to ask you to just leave the audience with um, with any thoughts or any takeaways that you'd like them to mull over uh, over the coming mm. hours and days. Oh yeah, man! Great question. Um, you know, I, ah, that's a really great question. You know, I think that, that one, like it, it, the story of the Burma bill in passing in, in a way is an inspiring story. A lot of people said it wouldn't happen. Um, and, but we really worked hard, uh, for, for two years and we got it done. Um, and it was because of like really a lot of young people from Myanmar that really came out, uh, and, and worked on it pretty, pretty tirelessly. Uh, and we're really smart about like who to talk to, um, who to try to get to exert influence. You know, the U.S. role in Burma, um, you know, that's a big open question. And it's, it's always sort of weird coming here from the U.S. and looking at it because you see like people have a lot of hope in what the U.S. is going to do and then a lot of disappointment when it doesn't do that. Um, you know, I would say the Burma Bill is inspiring. It's important, but also temper your expectations. You know, like this is this is just a small piece of a very large equation, um, and uh, and and yeah, and, and unfortunately, it's it's only going to play a very minor role in the in the revolution in Burma. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. As regular listeners are aware, we often remind our audience about our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, at the end of a show. Truth be told, 
fundraising is hard work, and I can personally attest to the fact that it's really no fun to keep asking for contributions. Yet the situation on the ground in Myanmar is so distressing that we continue to do so on behalf of the Burmese people. What is most helpful at this time are recurring donations, which help alleviate both the stress and time involved in fundraising. If you're able to pledge a certain amount per month, our team can plan around having at least a consistent minimum amount to work with every month. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution, any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Rohingya and other vulnerable populations continue to be displaced and assaulted. Journalists are purposely targeted for harassment and violence. The political opposition has faced unspeakable violence and imprisonment.